The Mother Movement would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Yorta Yorta and Darawal Nations, and pay our respect to Elders both past and present. Hello and welcome to The Mother Movement. This is a podcast by Mums for Mums, where we dive deep into the incredible world of motherhood. As mothers ourselves and passionate health professionals, we understand the unique challenges and joys that come with raising children. Each week, we'll bring you captivating discussions with experts in the field of motherhood. So, no matter where you find yourself on this beautiful, sometimes bumpy road, remember that you are never alone on this journey. Together, let's dive in and celebrate each other as we navigate the joys and challenges of motherhood. Hello, and welcome to the Mother Movement Podcast. My name is Bree, and I'm a physiotherapist. Today, I'm going to be talking you through my birth story with my first child, Sunny. I will be talking about my experience with cholestasis and Crohn's disease. So cholestasis is a condition of pregnancy that I'll get into a bit more detail with later. Um, it can affect anyone and you don't know till the end of your pregnancy. So really worth a listen. And Crohn's disease is more of an immune condition that, yeah, you would know about if you had. So anyway, I'll talk through my journey with that right from the beginning until when I gave birth to my beautiful Sunny and after that. So I hope you enjoy. So let's start at the beginning. So I was 24 when myself and my partner Alex, we decided that it might be time to start thinking about having a baby. I think initially, because I guess, yeah, 24 is quite young. We got together when we were about 19 and 20. And we always kind of knew we wanted a big family. And I guess we always knew that we were going to be together for a long time and hopefully forever. We also knew that because we wanted a big family, we would need to start trying fairly early because we wanted to give ourselves as much time as possible um, as we knew that we'd had family members and things like that who'd had some trouble falling pregnant. So we wanted to make sure that, yeah, we had enough time for the family we wanted to create if that was what was going to happen for us. Yeah, from there, we went to the GP and I guess just asked kind of what we needed to do and where do we go from there. So we knew that I already had Crohn's disease, so we knew that that might throw a few things in the works. The first thing our GP told us to do was get, I believe it's called the Harmony test. So pretty much what that does is we get a blood test and I get the first blood test. It's about $400, so it is a little bit pricey, but... Pretty much they check my blood and then it tells me if I have any of the genetic markers for things like um, cystic fibrosis is one of them. But then there's a lot of other syndromes um, like spinal muscular atrophy and some that are um, not compatible with life and then some that are life limiting. So it lets you know if you have any of those genes. And if you do, then they do a blood test on your partner, see if they have those genes as well. Um, And then if you both have those genes, that's when they can take you down that kind of genetic counseling route and where you go from there. I didn't have any of those genes, so we didn't need to go down that pathway. I just had the blood test and it was all clear. So that was the end of that. After that, I saw my specialist. So I've got Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease is a condition that pretty much it affects my bowel. So mine's in my terminal ileum. So a part of my bowel, I guess the best way that I've found to describe it is my immune system's overactive in that area. So pretty much it attacks itself. Um, And what that leads to is things like inflammation in the bowel and it can also affect like my bowel movements. But I guess the issue with Crohn's is that it can affect things like you can get things like fistulas or which is like a hole in your bowel and different things that can become quite serious and problematic down the track. 
Um, but I've been really fortunate in that my disease is mild to moderate. I used to just find I'd get really severe abdominal pain and fatigue, but I did have a few hospital admissions at the start. So yeah, it was still something that we were really juggling and I was on some pretty intense medication for it. So that's what became significant in my pregnancy. So when I saw my specialist, I was on a medication called Imuran for my Crohn's. What that meant with the Imuran is that it, because your immune system is overactive in that area, what the medication does is it actually suppresses your immune system, but it's not smart enough to just suppress it, obviously, in the area that's needed. It suppresses it all over your body. The specialist said I needed to then see a, so my gastroenterologist recommended that I see a, I believe she's a genetic, no, she was the head of Mother Safe. So this was all before I actually got pregnant. I had to go and see, yeah, the, me and Alex went up and we saw the, I feel like her title was geneticist, but I'm not sure. Anyway, we had to go and see her at the Royal Women's. Um, and when I was there, she pretty much talked us through what it meant for me being on Imuran in pregnancy and having Crohn's disease and how that would affect the pregnancy. So this is, um, you've got to remember, so we're having these conversations in 2019. So just before COVID, we didn't know what was about to hit us and what that would mean for immune systems. Um, but I guess, um, without, I guess it's quite a, blunt thing to say but it's what we were told and it was one of those really tricky things to be told but they said that if I didn't take my medication so if I was to just let my Crohn's be as it was and potentially have a flare-up during pregnancy the risk of that if I had a flare while I was pregnant there was a risk of stillbirth so that's what I got told her recommendation looking at all the evidence was to stay on my medication but it did mean that I would be immune suppressed during my pregnancy because you're already immune suppressed, suppressed during pregnancy. And then I was going to be kind of doubly immune suppressed. And then it also meant they said that it does cross the placenta. So it meant that my baby would have low immunity when they're born also. So that was only for the first few weeks from what I remember. They would also have to have a blood test within the first few days because what can happen is it can knock out their white blood cells, so their immune response. So then, yeah, they would do a blood test initially after they were born, or maybe it was on the cord blood. And that was quite an intense choice to be like, well, and the other risks with the baby was, yeah, low immunity, but also low birth weight, premature labor. Those were kind of the risks from what I remember. So based on that, I guess when the other option is potential stillbirth, we're obviously going to be really mindful of that. So we decided to stay on the medication, of course. And then, yeah, we went along with things and then eventually, yeah, tried to get pregnant. It took about four months with Sunny. So pretty quick in the scheme of things. And then where do we go from there? So then, yeah, fell pregnant. I knew because of my Crohn's disease that I would go through the private system. I just felt with the issue of the Crohn's disease that I mean, of course, the public system would have been fine, but I guess I just wanted someone who I knew that was going to manage everything and know everything about me every time I saw them. So that's why I went in the private system and I had a wonderful experience. So I had um, Dr. Pip Gale was my obstetrician down in Wollongong. And yeah, so we had our first appointment with her. We had all our regular scans. Everything was going really well. I was super nauseous. So I did get really bad morning sickness. Um, and I guess it's not morning sicknesses that I had it all day. 
um, and I would vomit as well in that pregnancy. I was really tired, um, just all the normal kind of first trimester things, but overall, yeah, nothing that I could complain about really. It was just that nausea that was ongoing that a lot of women get. And then, and I never actually got classified as HG either. It was more just that I think it lasted till about 24 weeks. Anyway, so then, yes, we went along. All our scans were normal, cruising along as per normal. I should say as well, at 11 weeks, we actually went to Japan. So I had this holiday booked already. It was a ski holiday in Japan. I did actually ski. I went and saw my GP because you don't see your obstetrician. Well, I didn't until about 12 weeks. So I saw my GP before I left and got her opinion on it. She said, because I was somewhat a capable skier, I, um, I'm probably an intermediate skier. I, the baby was still, she said, the, your baby's still within your pelvic cavity at that point in time. So she was happy for me to ski and just take it quite easy. Anyway, we got through and yeah, everything went really well, apart from having to go to bed at like seven o'clock at night because I was wrecked after skiing pregnant and living off wedges, but that went fine. And then, yeah, we kind of cruised along until COVID. So then, yes, we got back from Japan. Interestingly, we got back in Japan at the end of February, 2020, obviously that first week of March. So we were about a week out and there was COVID when we were in Japan. So I don't know if you remember that cruise ship that was in Japan. We were literally in there when like in Japan, in Tokyo, when that was there. And that was kind of the start of COVID. I remember looking at hospitals being like, oh my goodness, that's a COVID hospital and things when we're in Japan. But yeah, got home. We just missed out on having to quarantine and then yeah, COVID hit. So then I just continued on. I guess that was still the early days, obviously monitoring everything because I was immune suppressed already because I was pregnant. And I guess remembering at this stage, we didn't really know what COVID meant for baby, for mom, anything like that. We were just hearing these kind of horror stories that were coming out. But yeah, we really didn't know what would happen if a pregnant woman got it and there just was no data on it so that was quite nerve-wracking and then I guess add on top of that that I'm on an immune suppressant medication and Imuran is classed um, I believe I don't know if it's changed but when I was on it they pretty much classed it as like a chemo drug so your immune system was severely compromised so that became quite stressful and working as a physio and where I was working at the time, I was seeing up to kind of 20 clients a day. I was working days from like eight till six, 20 client days. And so I guess you can imagine the amount of people I'm coming into contact with. And that anxiety was just building within me really, because obviously as you do, you want to keep working and saving for when you have the baby. My partner, so Alex, he just started his own business. So yeah, that was all a bit stressful and it's no wonder, which I guess I'll talk about it another time, but I had some, yeah, some poor mental health postpartum and I think this is all where it really began. Yeah, so we were kind of fighting with that, working, but obviously having that anxieties about working and coming in contact with so many people and then as everything progressed, I ended up, um, my obstetrician ended up telling me to stop working at 27 weeks, I believe it was, yeah, because... We just didn't know at that point in time and I had some risk factors and yeah, so that was me. And then from 27 weeks, I was pretty much housebound, which yeah, it was pretty awful. I couldn't really leave, like I could go for walks and things like that, but because it was peak COVID, I was at high risk. We didn't know what was going to happen um, if I got COVID and my family was all interstate. So the borders were locked down. No one could come visit me. I remember like lots of people barely seeing me pregnant that pregnancy because 
yeah, everything was closed. So that was that. So I stopped work at 27 weeks. And then from there, I remember from about, I think it was about 31 or 32 weeks, I started getting itchy. I just started feeling like on my legs and things like that. I was just a bit itchy. And I thought it was dry skin. I think I called my mom, my sister-in-law. I remember talking to all of them about this dry skin and this itch I had. And they were all like, yep, pregnancy, you know, you're dehydrated, really normal. Um, Here's some ointment. This is what I use. Put moisturizer on, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, sweet. I'm just overreacting. It's just an itch. It'll go away. Anyway, this itch kind of progressed and progressed and progressed. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And I was messaging a midwife friend of mine who was also pregnant at the same time. And I remember saying, are you really itchy? Like, are you finding that you're so itchy? And she was like, no, are your hands and your feet itchy? And I was like, yeah, my palms are so itchy. Like I'm really struggling with itching. And she was like, okay, you could have a condition called cholestasis. So I need you to call, um, I think, so what happens? So through the private system, I could call the private hospital at any point and just let them know like if I had reduced movements or if anything didn't feel right, I could kind of call the private hospital midwives and then they would say whether to come in for monitoring or not. Um, So anyway, I called them and just let them know. So I think this is by now we're at like 36, 37 weeks. So I've kind of persisted with this itch for a long time. And then, and I, I knew nothing about cholestasis. I had no idea what it was. And I don't think many people really do. Anyway, I was getting, yeah, this intense itching on my palms. And then it was just like a general itch as well. Call the hospital and they were like, yeah, come in. Let's get a test and see how we go. I've got a feeling, I can't really remember now, but I feel like they tested the first time and maybe there was nothing or maybe I'm imagining that. Anyway, I ended up going in this one time. I was like 37 weeks by this point. And by this stage, it was like so bad. I can't even describe. It's honestly the worst, worst thing that I've been through. So pretty much the way I described it when I went into the hospital, um, which Alex was like, you can't say that. And I don't even know if I can say it on a podcast, but I literally said, the midwife said, so what does it feel like? And I was like, I feel like I'm a crack addict. I said, I am just scratching at my hands so intensely. I feel like I'm going to rip the skin off. I can't sleep at night. I'm having to put my hand on the cold wall, having to use ice bricks all night, have cold showers. Like I said, it is so intense. And she was like, okay. Um, and then I heard <laughs> her reiterate this to my obstetrician. <laughs> so my obstetrician came in and then I hear my midwife say to her, yeah, she said she feels like a crack addict. And I was like, what? I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Alex looked at me and anyway, we both laughed. But um, moral of the story is it was awful. The itching was intense. So they ran some blood. So I've now since found out what they did was they ran and they check your liver function and your bile salts. So cholestasis, and I'm going to absolutely butcher this explanation, but pretty much your liver, the the bile in your liver, something happens with that. And anyway, you end up with like bile salts and accumulation of bile salts in your blood. And that's what makes the itching or they don't really know exactly what causes the itching, but it's something to do with that process that then makes you really, really itchy. So you have, yeah, you have too much, too high levels of bile salts in your blood and it's something to do with your liver in pregnancy. So pretty much they, yeah, checked that my bile salts were too high which then meant I had this condition called cholestasis. 
So then the obstetrician let me know. And I believe their evidence isn't quite there yet to know for sure. But pretty much what my midwife told me, the obstetrician told me was that after 38 weeks, um, there is quite an increased risk of stillbirth with a condition like cholestasis. So we need to, we'll need to induce you at 38 weeks. She said, or we can induce you earlier, but let's see if you can make it till 38 weeks because it's better for um, your baby's growth as well. So she was like, let's try and get you to 38 weeks. What that'll mean is you have to be monitored every single day in hospital. Um, the hospital is about 45 minutes each way from my house, which is not too bad, but yeah, it was a bit of an inconvenience. So I'd have to go in each day and get the monitoring on to just check yeah, that the baby was moving fine and everything like that, which it always was. And then I went in for, so then I persisted, like the nights were just getting horrible where I really couldn't sleep from this itching and it was just intense. And to the point where I actually think it really affected me because I was getting such poor quality sleep. I literally wasn't sleeping for days before I ended up having the um, all sunny. I think that also really affected my mental health because I just, I couldn't get any sleep. And in hindsight, I wish I had have just said, yeah, please induce me earlier because I think it would have been better, but I wanted to wait till this 38 weeks. I went in for the appointment on, I was 37 weeks. And on the Friday I had an appointment with her, my um, obstetrician who was wonderful. And I remember her saying in the appointment, she said, and just remember as well. So this was still peak COVID. So my partner couldn't even come to the appointment. So I've driven 45 minutes to Wollongong and then he's at home he couldn't come to the appointment or anything. And then in the appointment, she said to me, um, I remember saying how bad it was. And she said, oh, well, like we can just induce you now. Let's just go to the birth suite and we can do it now. And at the time I was like, oh, okay. Um, and in hindsight, I absolutely should have just said, yup, called Alex and got him to come in. But I think at the time it was just quite a shock. Yeah. So I said, oh no, no, it's fine. Like I'll just keep coming in for monitoring. Let's leave it till Monday. And I also, I guess I'd been told that we wanted to get to this magic 38 weeks, which was really only two days away. So I don't think it would have made a difference. But yeah, in my head, I was like, no, no, we've said 38 weeks, so we'll get to 38 weeks. Anyway, over the weekend, yeah, I just did things like walking on the sand and tried to kind of do everything I could to see if I could get my cervix. Because I was 38 weeks, um, my obstetrician had said to me, you know, try a few things to see if you can get your cervix opening a little bit because it's still very close and it'll make the induction process a lot easier, particularly being my first baby. So yeah, I remember going down to the beach and just walking on the soft sand for ages. And then, yeah, on the Sunday, we packed our bags. <laughs> I actually remember on the Sunday morning, I don't know why you have all these crazy rituals before you have your first baby, but I remember being like, this is our last breakfast. It's a couple of two. So let's go and have a meal together. And we went to go to our usual cafe. And for some reason I was craving bacon and eggs. Oh, my iron was low. And I said, I need to have bacon because my iron is low. <laughs> So we went to sit down in a normal cafe and there was no seats. So I was like, okay, we got to find another cafe. And we live in a small town, so there's not many options. Got to find another cafe for bacon eggs. Anyway, for some bizarre reason, this weekend, and she was born in August, so I have no idea why our little coastal town was so busy that weekend, but it was. So we went to all these cafes. There was no seats. The only place that ended up being seats was this vegetarian cafe, which is lovely. We go there all the time. But of course, they didn't have bacon. Anyway, I was... I remember being devastated that I couldn't have bacon for our last meal as a couple, which is ridiculous. Anyway, that night went to the hospital and my obstetrician had told me, make sure. And I know I've had friends in the past where this hasn't actually been the case, but I think it was so helpful. She said, even though we're just doing like the gel tonight, make sure you bring your partner because 
um, he can stay there. And I guess we were lucky because it was a private as well, but she said he can stay there. And that means if you do go into labor, which is possible, he will be there without like missing the birth or anything. So I was like, yep, yep. Brought him along. We went in um, and then, yeah, we go into the birthing suite and they put the gel on. (laughs) And funnily enough, my body is just one of those bodies that reacts to things. So I'm a vomiter, I'll pass out. And that's exactly what happened. So I put the gel on, midwife walks out the room. My partner's standing there. So Alex is looking at me and the next minute I'm like, oh, and you know when you get that feeling like you feel like, oh, I don't feel so good. I was like, oh, I think I'm going to throw up. And then he's running to get the bag. And as he goes to get the bag, I pass out. But luckily I'm on the bed. But I think it was more worrying for him because he's like, my wife's just coming to hospital. They just put the gel on to have a baby. And now she's passed out on the bed. So he's like emergency buzz at the midwife. I've woken back up. Anyway, everything was fine. They just raised the head of the bed. I think they might've had me on my back for a bit too long and that's what's happened anyway. Or it could have just been in the adrenaline of getting the gel. Midwife said to me, she was like, okay. She was like, great sign. If you've just vomited, your body has reacted to this and you're definitely going to go into labor. Normally when people throw up after the gel, they're going into labor. I was like, okay, great. We're on. Anyway, I had to stay in the monitoring for a few hours because of fainting. And eventually we go back to the room she does it again at 10 o'clock and she's like, yep, I had to get the gel on again. So the gel is like a cervical ripening gel and it just helps your cervix start to open up. So then they can break your waters and do the drip and things like that. But it can send some women into labor. I don't know the percentages. And then anyway, so they, she puts the gel on and pretty much, yeah, just inserts one finger, pops it on the cervix. So we do that again at 10 and she's like, yep, you're definitely going to labor tonight. I was like, great. Okay, cool. Then from there, I just got this like crazy back pain. It was like, it felt like the worst period back pain of my life. Um, and we went back to the room and I remember, and I don't know why I do this, but my obstetrician had said to me, if the pain gets really bad, just tell the midwife, say, call Pip. I want to go over to the birthing suite and get the induction process started, break my waters, all of that. But for some reason I was like, no, no. Let's do the right thing. Let's not wake the obstetrician up. Let's wait till the morning. Like I can put up with this. It'll be fine. So anyway, all night I was like going back and forth. I was in the shower and I had the tens machine on and I was so restless and so unsettled. They give you a sleeping pill too. So I couldn't sleep because I was in pain and just like up and down. Um, I could only have Panadol. I remember buzzing the midwife at some point and I was like, look, I'm in so much pain. Like, can I have anything else? And she said, no, like all we give after the gel is Panadol. And I remember in my head thinking, okay, this is when Pip said, you need to say, I need to go across to the birthing suite. Like this is, we're on here. And then I was like, no, but that, you know, I'm, I'm a rule follower. And I was like, we said we were going in the morning. So we'll go in in the morning. So anyway, I spent the whole night restless. Then at about seven, no, six o'clock, we had to, I must've fallen asleep in the early hours of the morning because I remember at six o'clock our alarm went off and it was the most beautiful thing because we actually didn't know we were having sunny at that point in time. We didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. And we had this real feeling that it was a boy. We thought we were having a boy and we thought his name was going to be Harry. But strangely enough, and I must've done it because we knew our girl name was Sunny. So I set my alarm to wake us up is sunrise by Nora Jones. So yeah, it was just this beautiful song and there was this beautiful sunrise happening outside. And I think it must've been a sign from Sunny who was ready to come. Um, so yeah, 6am we wake up and this beautiful little midwife comes in and she's like, all right, time to have a baby. Off you go. And then she kind of rushed us out the room. So we had to go across to birthing suite 
And then what they do, oh, so then they try and break the waters. They use, if you haven't seen it, it's like a, like a knitting needle. Um, my obstetrician the second time just used a little hook on her finger, which was much more pleasant. But the first time the midwife used a um, knitting needle. It wasn't a knitting needle, but that's effectively what it looks like. We go across, she preps me, and she started to put the knitting needle like in and it was so painful. And I just, and she was like, oh, your cervix, I've got like a retroverted uterus. So the cervix sits like really posterior. And I think, cause I wasn't actually, when you're normally in labor, your cervix comes like more forward and down. Whereas mine hadn't done that yet. So it was really hard for her to try and break my waters. Anyway, it was becoming more and more painful. And I was like, okay, I think I just need to go to the toilet. And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And I think um, really what I was saying was I just really need a break from this. So I went to the toilet and then I was kind of sitting there and <laughs> I just like wouldn't come back out of the toilet. And I'm not really sure um, if it was purposeful, but I think I was really procrastinating coming out and getting my borders, waters broken to the point where Alex said it was just him and the midwife sitting in the room for like five minutes. And eventually he was like, you're right, Brisa. And at that point I realized I had to quickly come out. So I came out of the room um, anyway, broke my waters and then from there they put the drip in and it all got quite intense quite quickly from memory. I had a little bit of the gas, but that was making me vomit. So I stopped the gas. Then I remember that the anaesthetist leaves at 12. So midday, like you get induced by like 8am or something. And by midday, the anaesthetist actually leaves and then they're on call or something like that. So then if you want it after midday, I got told that like either they will might not get there in time or you've got to wait a really long time. So everyone was like, make sure you get the epidural if you need it before midday, um, which anyway, so strange. But I was like, yeah, OK, got it. So then I think it got to like 1030. And I remember I had prepped Alex that I didn't want the epidural by any circumstances, no epidural. And then by like 1030 or something, I was like, all right, need an epidural. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah. let's order the epidural, <laughs> let's get it. So anyway, we got the epidural. Um, they checked me at that point and they were like, yep. So I think it was like, a, yeah, after I had the epidural, they waited like half an hour, then they did a check. At that point, they were like, oh, you're about, I think that was controversy, but it was like four or six centimeters or something. They said, look, you're about four to six centimeters. And she said, look, I think it's going to be maybe another four hours, but she said, I'll check you again in two hours. So like, yep, yep. She said, it's first time birth. It's going to be a while. Sure. So then that was the other thing The epidural only worked on half my body. It's funny, this story, as I say the bits, it's just because I'm saying the important bits, most of my pregnancy and birth, like I actually have the most beautiful memories of my birth and I have a few beautiful memories from pregnancy. Didn't love pregnancy, but a few beautiful memories. But the birth, I have such a beautiful memory. So as much as when you listen to this, it probably sounds like all these dramatic things. Realistically, I'm just, those are the interesting things are when things actually happen. But you've got to remember most of the time, nothing was happening and everything was going along really nicely. But yes, the epidural. So they only got it in like one side of my body. So they put it in my back like normal, but it must've been something to do with the space in my back. And pretty much what was happening is my left leg was completely numb. So to the point where I couldn't move it at all, it was dead. I couldn't feel anything touching my left leg. Right leg was had full sensation. I could lift it up and down, move it around. So it was clear that it was only working on one side of my body. And I could feel all the labor pain on the right, but nothing on the left. Um, and interestingly, like I actually, so at the time I was, 
obviously telling the the midwife and I said, look, I can feel it on half my body. Um, And she just kept turning up the machine and my left leg was just getting more and more numb and my right leg was doing nothing. And when that kept happening, and then I said to her, like, this really, and she said, I can't turn it up anymore. And so she said, it's obvious that, you know, it's affecting. And she said, this does happen sometimes. It's only gotten to one side of your body. It's to do with the placement of the needle. She said, the only thing we can do in this situation is get the anesthetist back up to take your epidural out and redo it. But obviously then there'll be a break in the effectiveness of it. And you're already, you know, six centimeters, whatever. So she was like, mm, up to you. But so I was like, nah, let's do this. Anyway, so yeah, she checked me when I was like four, six centimeters. And then from there, she said, I'll come back in two hours, but I think you'll be more like four hours or more before you have the baby. So like, yeah, cool. Then I just remember the contractions were getting so intense. So within an hour after that initial check, when I was four to six centimeters, I just remember looking at the screen and you can see on the monitoring and I could feel there was like no break between the contractions. It was the tiniest break and then they would just go again. And I was, yeah, it was pretty intense. So I'm very glad I had the epidural for half my body. And then I ended up thinking like, okay, okay, only one more hour. And I just remember watching the clock thinking, okay, one more hour till she checks again, one more hour. Cause I didn't want to be that person who was like, no, it's really intense. Can you check? Like, I think the baby's coming. I just, I don't know why I didn't want it this whole time. I was just like, they said this time. So it's going to be this time. So then I was like, no, she said she'll check in two hours and it's probably going to be more hours. So let's just wait till the two hour mark. So I was just watching, watching, watching. Anyway, we get like to the two hour mark, the middle. And I'm like, yeah, it was so intense at this point. And then the midwife comes in and she does, she's like, yeah, let's do a check. And I remember saying to her like, oh, you know, it's pretty intense. Anyway, she's checked and she's like, oh, Alex, have a look. And Alex has a look and there is hair, like not my hair, the baby's hair is there. And he said he just saw the hair and everything. And so then she just runs out the room and said, like yelled to the midwife station to get the obstetrician. So then anyway, within literally five minutes, um, it took two pushes and they were very intense pushes, but yeah, five minutes, two pushes and Sunny was born. And it was beautiful. She went straight on my chest. Um, I remember not actually knowing what she was. So we didn't know what she was. And I lifted her up and everything's really swollen. And they said, what is she? And I guess, because I I think it's because I thought the whole pregnancy that she was a boy. I was like so shocked when I was like, um, and I was like, I think it's a girl. And they're like, yeah, it's a girl. So anyway, then we put her on my chest and she like, kind of, you know, we tried to latch her and have a bit of a feed. And I don't remember if they gave me the needle for my placenta or if it just came out, but I don't remember it being an issue. They took her just to do her little checks and everything was fine. And she was back on my chest. And yeah, from there, it was really, really beautiful. But I think what's interesting as well is just not knowing, because it happened in my second birth as well, you just don't know how quickly you're going to dilate so for me that kind of six to ten centimeters or six till birth is within like an hour and my whole labor active labor I think it was about four hours of labor from like zero or whatever it was one centimeter dilated to ten and then yeah pushing stage was like five minutes so I remember after that the midwife actually said to me next time you're pregnant you have to make sure if you're in labor, because after the first birth, it gets a lot quicker with each birth or can do, not always, but can do. They said, um, and I live 45 minutes from the hospital. 
So they said with your next birth, if they said if you start laboring and your waters haven't broken, you probably have enough time. But if your waters break at home, they're like, you need to get in the car and get to the hospital. Like they said, you like, you cannot, if your waters are broken, you need to get in the car. Anyway, um, yes. So the other thing, so that birth, yeah, ended up being really, really wonderful memories. And I would say as well, so interestingly, I just wanted to touch on, so the cholestasis, it took probably a day or two after having sunny. So the only way to get rid of cholestasis, I should mention that as well, there is a medication you can have, but by the time I had the cholestasis, I there was no point in me having that medication because she was going to be born soon anyway. Um, and by the time it was effective, she would have been out. The only other way to actually get rid of the itching and the cholestasis is to birth the placenta because they know that there's a link between the placenta and cholestasis. So once the placenta was out, I wouldn't say it was instant. It probably took like a day or two, but it was the severity was way less pretty much instantly. And then in regards to the Crohn's disease, interestingly, I had done a lot of reading. So obviously I wasn't prepared to not take my medication when I was pregnant because of the risks, but I had done a lot of reading about stopping your medication because I found out that for breastfeeding, it does cross into the milk and it does still affect their immunity if you're breastfeeding on Imuran. So I guess I kind of figured that whilst she was inside me, it affect her. Like I had to take the medication, but once she was outside of me, it was actually, she was worse off for me taking the medication. Um, and I was lucky enough that my disease was mild to moderate and fairly stable. So I decided to see how I went without any medication, um, from pregnancy. And yeah, I'm pretty stoked to say it's been, well, she's three now and I have not had a flare up since before her pregnancy. So I have done a lot of reading in that you can go into remission during pregnancy. Obviously not everyone, um, but it can happen. And I guess I was one of those really lucky ones, touch wood, that that is what's happened so far. So yeah, I haven't had any medication or anything like that since I had Sunny. Anyway, I yeah hope that has been helpful for some others out there and yeah, if you've been on that journey of cholestasis, I hear you and I feel you and validate that it is an awful experience, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it is now a distant memory. I would also say for those mothers, and it's a bit of a spoiler because I will go through my second birth at some stage, but I did not have cholestasis in my second pregnancy. So please know that, yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and overall I had an amazing birth experience. I know that isn't the case for everyone and I feel absolutely horrible and stand with those women who haven't had that experience but yeah I thought I would share a bit of a positive induction story for those women having an induction um, that are a little worried about it so I hope you guys enjoyed it if you enjoyed this episode make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends for a wealth of free resources, visit our website, themothermovement.com. And if you are seeking even more support and expert insights, join our postpartum package with more than 40 videos from health professionals and a supportive community of like-minded mothers. Together, we can navigate the postpartum journey with confidence. This is The Mother Movement.